Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today, Michelle Dickinson, is a very passionate mental health advocate. She's a TEDx speaker and a published author of a memoir entitled Breaking Into My Life. She goes first and sees herself as the bridge that helps people get comfortable with their mental health so that they reach out and get the support they need before they hit a crisis. She makes it okay to not be okay and thrives on making a real difference in the lives of others, especially around their well-being. After years of playing the role of child caregiver, Michelle embarked on her own healing journey of self-discovery. She went on to spend years working to eradicate the mental health stigma within her own workplace by elevating empathy and compassion, causing more open conversations and leading real change in how mental health is understood. She also knows firsthand what it feels like to struggle with a mental illness after experiencing her own depression due to challenging life events. This has provided her with a rich perspective. Michelle is out to do her part to eliminate the stigma by normalizing the mental health conversation within the workplace and beyond. She partners in innovative leaders to bring her programs and mental health strategies to help them cultivate cultures of compassion for those living with or caring for with invisible disabilities. Her resilience webinar has made an impact with empowering thousands of employees during the COVID-19 quarantine. We're honored that Michelle has shared some of her time with us today. Michelle, how are you doing today? I am great, Tim. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. Oh, it's, it's our honor, believe me. Um, Michelle, you were a child caregiver for your mother, who I think had bipolar depression. Is that correct? Yeah, she did. Yep. And a result of life's changes, you also discovered that you suffered from depression. Yeah. I can relate to that. I have severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I didn't know it until a little over eight years ago. Mm -hmm. and that was the cause of all of my addictions. And, you know, it brought me down. And thank God I got to the right doctor to properly diagnose me. And 
and, and get treatment because I've never felt better in my life. And that's why I do what I do because I don't want others to, to go through what I went through. It's too painful. It's too painful. Well, you have quite a story to tell. Uh, despite all of that upheaval, it sounds as though you've excelled at a very high level in your field. Can you tell us a little bit about your story of how you got here today? And please take your time. Sure, sure. Um, again, thank you for having me and for being interested in my story, Tim. Um, so I, uh, like you said, grew up with a mother who had bipolar disorder. And, you know, our formative years, our, our childhood years, they really do shape us. I cared for her for a large portion of my life um, when she was too fragile to be left alone and not quite sick enough to be in the hospital. Um, I cared for her, I looked after her, and then um, I was diagnosed with depression when I was going through a really rough divorce. And you know, being an adopted daughter, I just never thought I would ever experience what my mom had. I thought I was almost immune, but when I was diagnosed, just because of a life event, it just made me realize how many people are vulnerable for a mental illness just because of life events. So, so I dealt with that. And then when I was working at my Fortune 50 company, I was nominated to give a TED Talk and tell my story about loving my mother with bipolar. And I did. And coming from a childhood where I always put the needs of my mother first and really didn't ever feel like I had a voice. When I stepped on the TED stage, I actually felt like I had a voice and people were very receptive to that voice. And so I knew I needed to do more with that. And that's when I decided I'm gonna write my memoir and expand on this TED talk to really help people understand what mental illness is. When you look at it from the outside, you have your own perspectives and biases. I thought if I could write my memoir and walk people through that experience of what it was like to love and care for someone who was so emotionally unstable, abusive at times, then maybe I could help there be more understanding and compassion. And that's really how we remove stigma is through education, understanding and compassion. So released my memoir, was working in a Fortune 50 company had a great career. I was very fortunate to start my career as a secretary and end up as a director in a, in a big pharma company. And I just got very connected to wanting to do more with my life. I mean, I, I had now this, this book, this TED Talk, this voice, and people were paying attention to me. So ultimately, I left the pharmaceutical industry to start my own mental health company because when I was at the pharma company, I was helping them to create a culture of compassion through a mental health employee resource group. And I wanted to do that for other workplaces. So I left the organization, created my own company, and that's what I do today. I work with organizations to teach their employees resilience, compassion, uh, cultivate a culture of compassion, uh, stigma-free environment for those suffering or those who love someone suffering. And, and that's what lights me up. And that I'm clear is my life's purpose. That's great. Sounds incredible. And I can really relate. I feel the same way. Let me frame our discussion and then we can drill down into specifics. Mm -hmm. So what drives you to such a high level of excellence in, in the area that you delve in? 
You know, I think it's all about how precious life is. You know, you, you mentioned this before, um, you know, there's so many people suffering in silence and shame and thinking that they have to navigate a mental health challenge by themselves because they're just so afraid or embarrassed about it. And we know that those cases that end in suicide is because they don't have, they don't have any hope. So what lights me up is the possibility of ender, ending suffering in silence and preventing suicide. Yep. I'm right with you. I'm on your team. Thanks. So can you tell us, you mentioned your TEDx talk, and, and that interests me as well, and I'm sure our listeners want to f- learn about what your talk was really about. Yeah, so it was about um, the realization that my mother was perfect just the way she was. I think a lot of times people relate mental illness to needing to fix someone or your diagnosis being your identity. And the message in my TED talk was really that my mother was perfect just as she was and she did the best she could. So for people who love someone with a mental illness, oftentimes we're at the effects of their abuse and we're unable to separate them from their illness because we're so focused on what they're doing to us. In that talk, I walk people through that realization that I had that like, my mom had bipolar disorder and she was raising a young daughter and she was doing the best she could. And oh my God, that must've been hard. So it's really about um, forgiveness. It's about understanding that people are not broken who have a mental illness. They, they are who they are and they have a diagnosis, but they are not the diagnosis themselves. And um, I just wanted people to, to understand what that journey is like and the forgiveness that I was able to realize. Awesome. Well, I've been, I'm in the middle of applying for a TEDx talk, so I hope to get on that same stage as well. So let me ask you, how would you describe your style that you use in the area that you focus on? Is there a central message that you try to get across? Yeah. I mean, I think, especially during COVID, I want people to realize that we're living through a pandemic and they need to give themselves grace. It all starts with self-compassion and self um, and having empathy and compassion for yourself. Um, You can't have that for other people if you don't exercise that for yourself. And, you know, a lot of people are feeling like they just have to power through and they don't acknowledge how they're feeling. So I want people, I want to give people permission to just be human beings having this pandemic experience and to give themselves the grace that they deserve Um, and be okay not being okay. Because if you look at the statistics, the CDC says that one in three of us are dealing with depression or anxiety during this pandemic. So if one in three of us are dealing with it, why are we not talking about it? So I really want people to just acknowledge how they're doing talk about it and know where to go for support before they hit crisis. Yeah. I, that's just like I, what came to me a few months ago was, you know, if we all get an annual physical checkup, mm-hmm. why don't we get an annual mental health checkup? And I just, 
I, I just can't get off that. You know, I, I want people to realize that mental health is just as important, if not more important than physical health. So that's an important message. And yeah. so what's been the most challenging aspect of what you're doing now? Well, you know, I think um, it's educating organizations because I work with organizations who mostly uh, innovative organizations who are recognizing the emotional and mental impact this pandemic is having on their greatest asset and that's their people. So um, I think it's the education of the other organizations who think they're doing adequate support for their people because they have benefits and an EAP hotline. And I say to them, what's the utilization on your EAP hotline, right? Like what's the utilization? And, and really, if you have one in three people dealing with something, why are not more employees utilizing it? And it's fear and shame and embarrassment and all of that. So I think the biggest hurdle is getting organizations to realize now is the time where they can step up, support their people, breathe the loyalty that they want and preserve their level of engagement while reducing disability costs. Because at the end of the day, if they go out on disability, then you have another financial impact. So it's to your best interest, aside from it being the right thing to do, to really preserve the wellness of your employees. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and we'll talk about this later in when I talk about masculinity, but it's, it's so important, uh, not only for men and women, but women, you know, they always talk about women need to be heard and that's fine. But my point is, is that, you know, men and the good old boys network and the toxic masculinity those men have to understand their role, especially in the workplace. Right. Again, is to create that environment so it's safe for a woman to make her contribution. Right. And so many men, you know, just will talk over women and won't give them the opportunity. And they don't realize, and their vice president doesn't realize that, that limits their productivity as a, as a unit and thus limits their profitability and their revenues. And like you said, if I think if companies have a proactive program right. to bring these people in and work with them and show them that the value of what it is to engage in such a, process that it's a win-win. So I think it's really important. So tell us a little bit about your book and, and why you wrote that. Sure. I mean, I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, like I think that the Ted talk gave me the confidence and the desire to pull through on a dream that I had always had, which was to write the book. Um, so I, you know, building on the TED talk, I thought if I could really humanize that experience of loving someone, because people who care for people with a mental illness know it can be punishing for them as well. And when one person in the family has a mental illness, the entire family struggles 
or is affected by it. Maybe they don't struggle, but they're all affected by it. So it was really just let me tell the story and have people understand um, what bipolar looks like from the lens of a little girl. I mean, it's the rapid cycling, it's the highs, the lows, it's the, you know, the mania, which is like Disney and the depression, which is dark and heavy and thick and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you know, and I wanted people to realize what it's like. I mean, it was sometimes paralyzing for me because I could not do anything about my mother's suffering. Um, so I wanted people to really step into my shoes as a little girl. So I, I vividly recalled like instances of that I went through um, as a child and even as a young woman with my mom, because I wanted people to get it and to maybe, you know, not look at mental illness as something you see in the media or, you know, something that gets glamified by a celebrity, but rather a real human experience. So, yeah, it's really like all about my childhood, my adolescent years, my young adult life. And then um, at the end, the realization of what I did, how I did benefit from caring for her. Great. Let me ask you a little bit about the work you do within organizations. You talk about shifting culture. Right. So what kind of culture shifting work do you do within these organizations? Sure. Um, you know, most organizations are really great about accommodations. I mean, they have to be from per the law accommodations for people with physical disabilities. Where I think we have the greatest opportunity is accommodations for people with mental disabilities or invisible disabilities, where you can't see it to be able to say, oh, do you need help? You know, it's something that is not visual, therefore it's assumed that you're okay or 100%, but you might be dealing with something, you know, and it's an added burden for someone with a mental illness to come to work and try to pretend that they're not dealing with something. So. I work with organizations to just kind of turn up the volume of what they're already doing because many organizations have a good, you know, employee assistance program benefits, but if there isn't a normal conversation around mental well-being in the workplace, employees are not going to feel comfortable um, bringing their full and authentic selves to work. So it has, you have to breed a culture of compassion and trust with employees and leaders. You have to normalize the conversation in general around mental health. Um, and how do you do that? There's several different things that organizations can do. And it, you could, it could be as simple as the first thing I have on my website at michelledickinson.com. I have five steps for cultivating a culture of compassion. The first one on there is having a senior leader in an organization, like tell one on him or herself. And, and maybe share authentically, you know, there was a time when I dealt with, there was a time when my partner dealt with, and that sets the tone. There's power in setting the tone for what is a tolerated conversation. Um, and it has other people then talk about that leader, like, wow, the courage he had or she had to talk about it. And it gives them permission to sort of start to create a, a psychologically safe environment to be themselves. You know, I love that you mentioned the word authentic self. I have found through my experience that 
you know, since I've got on the other side of, of my mental health issues, that every day I become more and more my authentic self. But that takes a lot of work. And this is something that is so, I think it's so hard for the average person to unpack that and to take a look, self-discovery and, and be honest with themselves and others in order to, you know, peel that onion and get to that authentic self. That, that takes a lot of work. And I mean, I still work out on it every day. It, It just, whether it's consciously or hopefully through my subconscious, it, it, it just needs a lot of work and it's, but it's very, very important. So, yeah. Um, so let me ask you, uh, you've done a lot of stuff. Is there one moment where you felt the most gratification for your experiences and why was that? Yeah, Tim, you know, there's a really cool, um, there's a really cool story about that. So I released my book in the beginning of 18 and it's been, it's been available globally. And I, I get notes from people all the time who read the book and it resonates with them because whether they had an undiagnosed parent or they did have a diagnosed parent, it resonates with them. But there was this one particular email that I got from a young girl and she might've been 16 years old and she found my book. Someone had given her my book or she bought it or whatever. And she wrote to me and she read my story and she told me that she has a mom with bipolar disorder and that my book gave her hope that she was going to be okay. And that just sent chills down my spine because I never in a million years, like I, when I thought about who my audience was, I was like, well, it's anybody who's affected by mental illness, but like a 16 year old girl who found hope through my story. I was so moved. I was like moved to tears when I saw that note. I was like, oh my, this, this is why it, I wrote the book. It took me four years to write the book. I spent weekend after weekend crying, reliving these experiences. It was not easy, but I'm like, you know what? Those four years and all those tears was so worth that one note from that 16 year old girl. That's great. And I can relate. I, I, when I wrote my book, I mean, there were times when it was so heavy, I had to just get out of the chair yeah. Get away from the computer and lie down because it was overwhelming. Yeah. And, and to relive that. But, you yeah. know, I wouldn't want it any other way. I'm glad I fought through that to get to the other side. It's yeah. so well, well worth it. So, did you ever get down on yourself during this process and feel that the effort at this level? that you're working at was just too challenging for you and, and you felt overwhelmed. And that happened on Friday. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, like for, for a woman who spent her entire career in the corporate environment to suddenly become entrepreneur and wants to change the world in a world that doesn't know they need change. It is not, I am like a salmon swimming upstream most days. It is exhausting because, you know, I don't want to be the one that has to convince the CEO or the HR leader that it's a good idea to do this. Like I want people to genuinely get, it's a good idea to do this and I'm your tool to help you. 
but yeah, I have moments all the time when I'm just like, I don't want to do marketing. I don't want to do business development. I don't want to do sales. All I want to do is help people. <laughs> like that's all I want to be doing the work that I know is needed, that I know is going to help them and fulfill me at the same time. So yeah, I have those emotional journeys and you know, there, there are some statistics associated with depression and entrepreneurs that I used to just like kind of look at from a distance, but like now I get it. I get it. It's not easy to constantly day after day be on this emotional roller coaster of being an entrepreneur. So yeah, that's a frequent, that's a frequent moment of mine <laughs> that you tapped into there. So did you, how do you handle it? Do you ask for help? Yes. Good. Yeah. So for me, it's surrounding yourself with like-minded people and support and a supportive community. So I am part of a mastermind for entrepreneurs. I have an amazing coach who has me challenged every day. Um, I read a lot of mindset books to keep my mind in the space of creation and not dep deprecating, uh, conversations that don't serve me. Mindset is everything. So it's a combination of things. Like I would say community, mindset work, a coach, um, people who've walked the walk before you, who have had success that you can learn from. So it's all of the above. And sometimes it's just a good night's sleep. Yeah. You can say that again. Uh, so let me ask you about your nuclear family while you were growing up. Where did you grow up as a child? I grew up in Westfield, New Jersey, which is central New Jersey. Um, it was my mom and my dad, and I was adopted. And then I had uh, two cousins that came to live with me for about 10 years that my mom and dad took in. Great. And how would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show love, discuss <laughs> his emotions and feelings? My dad was not warm and fuzzy. He was, <laughs> he, was a, he was a Navy man. He, he was in the Navy. He um, was an engineer for IBM. He was the provider. And, and my mother was the one raising me. There was a very clear line in the sand there. And my dad, we laugh about it now. He unfortunately passed away. We laugh about the fact that like he wasn't a hugger. He wasn't uh, super emotional. Um, so, and I believe that, you know, that's part of his upbringing. And he also grew up with a mother who was an alcoholic who beat the crap out of him. So he had his own host of issues that shaped him into the man that he was. So when did it occur to you in, in growing up that yesterday's and today's masculinity norms, the the macho, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, good old boy network may have prevented your father or other men in your life from asking for help sooner for fear of being labeled as not a real man. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's always been the struggle. I mean, for someone who loved a woman with bipolar disorder, my father should have been in his own therapy just figuring out how to navigate her and how to take care of her. And, and, you know, he, he took, he shouldered so much of the burden, but never checked on in on his own mental health. And I just think that that's just, 
I mean, back then, my goodness, it's like how many years ago the culture was even worse than it is now. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate. And, you know, I hear a lot of people say, well, things are changing. You know, men aren't like that today. And, and I shake my head and I say, that is such bunk because that good old boy network in, in the workplace is alive and well. Yep. And number two, you know, in personal relationships, I see guys with big egos yep. who want the bigger, better deal. I got the biggest car. I got more money than you. I'm better looking than you. Blah, 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 blah. And there's nothing further from the truth. This needs so much work. And that's, that's why I do what I do. So anyway, when I was a kid, um, I was abused by my parents, physically, mentally, verbally. And I didn't even realize it. And that until until I got out of the house and went to school and, and looked back and, you know, I was starting my 41-year run on addiction and I realized that I was abused and I was lucky to get help from a, a doctor mm-hmm that's told me that that was the root of my severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. And thank God I, I overcome that. And I'm wondering if there was any kind of abuse in your family while you were growing up. Yeah. I mean, my, um, my mother was very emotionally, mentally, physically abusive, hands down, but you know, the hurt hurt others. So she was hurting. I don't give her an ex- I don't give her a pass because it still sucked. And she, you know, I mean, come on, no, no child should have had to endure some of the stuff that I did. Um, and my father, um, my father added to that because he would say to me, if you were just a good little girl, she wouldn't have a nervous breakdown. If you were just a good little girl, she wouldn't, you wouldn't upset her, you know? And, and so that just proved to me, the lack of knowledge, the lack of awareness that my father even had about mental illness. So, um, but yeah, I mean, my mother was, was very hands-on, very old school. Um, you don't dare talk back. You'll get your, your, you know, your mouth slapped several times, broken wooden spoons in the kitchen. I mean, it was just, it was the way that she parented. So yeah, incredibly abusive. Um, for sure. Now I found out in my research for my book that if this, if these mental health issues like depression go unchecked, it can manifest into risky behavior. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you displayed any risky behavior while you were growing up, whether it was alcoholism or drug addiction, pill addiction, violence, fighting others, things like that. 
I can talk to, so I personally didn't. I was diagnosed with depression for a very short period of time when I was going through my divorce. So I, I, I have never experienced um, prolonged depression. Just, it was like a circumstantial depression. But I can speak to my mother's mania and her risky behavior. I mean, I, I write a chapter in my book about her running around the house naked, mm. um, just acting completely strange. And then being in the car with her going somewhere and her mind, her mind being so all over the place that she was making right hand turns and left hand turns. And it was just so unsafe to be with her. So I would consider those to be two instances where yeah, she was not very, it, it was risky behavior, period. Okay. So looking back, can you share with us what you've learned from all of your experiences so far? That they're all perfect. I think that we get caught up in our disagreement with our reality and we create our own upset. You know, every single experience that I've had, the good, the bad, the ugly has shaped me into who I am today. And while I don't like some of them and they were painfully uncomfortable, they've made me into a better person. So I lean into this book that I love so much called Loving What Is by Byron Katie. And she literally says that if you resist your reality, the only thing you're doing is causing your own upset. Mm. So I try really hard to accept the challenges that are served to me and recognize that they're just shaping me into a better version of myself as much as it sucks in the moment. Yep. Very good. And one last question. Personally, how would you describe masculinity? How would I? Oh, so this is, I get all lit up about this topic. <laughs> because, you know, I, you know, I'm a single woman. I, I am a single woman and it is hard to find a self-aware man, a man who is self-aware, confident in himself, not afraid to be vulnerable, not afraid to be authentic. Um, so masculinity, as I define it, is a man who's comfortable in his skin, a man who's willing to be vulnerable, um, a man who's, who's loving and protective, um, but above all, knows himself, really knows himself. That's so important. Great. L let me just share with you quickly how I take a look at it. And mm -hmm. I look at it like a three-sided triangle. Okay. On one side, <clears throat> there's, I label it Clint for Clint Eastwood. Oh, okay. And that is, you know, the strong man, meaning the guy that can, you know, help lift the piano down the stairs, move heavy boxes, but also strength in, like you said, being able to have these conversations with family members or people at work that he knows these conversations have to be talked about, mm -hmm. but they're going to be difficult right. for the other person or him or everybody. So that's one side of the triangle triangle. The other side is curly for the curly and the three stooges, meaning that, men need to realize that life is not so serious yes. and they need to lighten up 
Life is to be enjoyed, to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so many men are, you know, like I said, they, they're, they got blinders on the bigger, better deal. And yeah. how, how can I make more money? And how can I get more women? And blah, 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 blah. Bunch, a bunch of BS, as I say. Yeah. And the, and the third side of the triangle I call Gandhi, which is to represent that a man needs to have some spiritual connection, no matter how he defines it, however he wants to pursue it in his own way. But he's got to have that connection to ground himself and balance himself and, and to be a complete man. Yeah. And, if, and if a man has all three of those sides of that triangle working for him, I consider him a masculine man. So, mm-hmm. I love it. Well, I, as you can see, Michelle's story is quite remarkable. She's a self-made woman of courage, bravery, and giving to her community. A real role model for our world today. We're honored that you... Uh, to have you on our podcast today. Do you have any final thoughts, Michelle? Yeah, I want to encourage people to check in with those that they love and don't assume that they're doing okay. You know, everybody's dealing with this pandemic in their own unique way based on their own past traumas and life experiences. Don't let anyone go unchecked on. You, you might be the only one checking on them. So, so reach out with, with your friends and your loved ones and just ask them, you know, hey, how, how are you doing. I just wanted to check on you. Yep. I'm, I'm with you on that. I often write about, you know, we're, we're in a time and place that it's not okay to sit back and not ask that question. We do have to check on each other. And, you know, there's something I learned 20 years ago that I think of, and that's love thy neighbor and everything else pales in comparison that if we can live to that standard, then, you know, we, we wouldn't have all the, all the stuff that goes on in this world. that's so difficult to swallow. So, yep. well, thanks again, Michelle. I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward and mm-hmm. listeners, Please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts, including the Mental Health News Radio Network and HealthyLife.net. And keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a book about relationships, depression, suicide, and how toxic masculinity affects relationships between men and women. And please contact me for speaking engagements through my website, TimCrass.com. And don't forget to have fun, everybody.